Dr. Christina Cho, and this is STEAM, the podcast, where I get to talk to amazing women and other underrepresented minorities in the fields of science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and the arts, or STEAM, and highlight the brilliant work they do and talk about the ways we can make STEAM truly more inclusive, equitable, and diverse. I'm super stoked to talk to today's guest. One of our guests is a colleague and a contemporary who I admire. She's intelligent, creative, kind, passionate, and just overall awesome. Although we've never met in person, we've been in the same Zoom room over the last two years, working on initiatives to make the biological sciences a bit more inclusive and equitable. Our second guest is just as talented and brilliant. In February 2022, CNBC highlighted her and her plan to graduate 10,000 Black and engineers by 2025. After reading about her, I knew I had to get her on our podcast. These two women are forces to be reckoned with, and I know that they will inspire you as much as they inspire me. Our conversation today will center around these two leaders and their experiences as Black women in STEAM. We'll talk about who and what inspires them, the challenges they faced, how they overcame those challenges, and the keys to their success. And we'll get to hear about their plans for a more equitable and representative future. My guests today are Dr. Eileen Fernandez and Favor Norris. Dr. Eileen Fernandez is a postdoctoral associate in the Department of Pathology at Yale University School of Medicine, where she conducts research to discover, develop, and optimize cancer biomarkers in breast, lung, gastric, bladder, and renal cancer. Her scientific excellence can be seen in her prolific publication record and the countless awards and honors she has received over the course of her academic career. Outside of the lab, Dr. Fernandez has several leadership roles. She is the co-founder and co-chair for the Yale School of Medicine Black Postdoctoral Association and the co-coordinator and steering committee member of the Yale Postdoc Association's Racial Justice Subcommittee. She also led the inaugural Intersections Science Fellow Symposium, a multi-institution initiative that aims to promote diversity and equity in the biological sciences as the programming co-chair. In addition, Dr. Fernandez has co-authored important and impactful pieces about DEI in academia and has been invited to speak at countless events to showcase her scientific prowess and her passion and dedication to make the biological sciences accessible to all people. Favor Norris is a PhD student in electrical engineering at Stanford University, where she is researching new tools, models, and methodologies to help us understand how the brain functions. She has been awarded multiple awards throughout her academic career, including the prestigious Gates Millennium Scholar, the Forbes 30 Under 30 Scholar, the Benjamin A. Gilman International Scholarship, the AAI Undergraduate Consortium Fellowship, and most recently, the Cleveland Neurodesign Entrepreneurs Workshop. Favor also holds several leadership positions. She is the national chairperson for the National Society of Black Engineers, a committee member of the Stanford Electrical Engineering Culture, Equity, and Inclusion Committee, and the president of the Stanford Graduate Students in Electrical Engineering. Not only is Favor an outstanding engineer and fearless leader, she contributes to the scientific community at large. She is a judge of the Green Scholars Science Fair, in which elementary, middle, and high school students of African descent showcase their STEM creations. She is also a content lab editor for Neurotech X and a grants officer for the National Science Policy Network. Favor has been highlighted in CNBC, the Atlanta Black Star, and Stanford Libraries for her academic excellence and her plans to improve equity and inclusion in the field of engineering. 
Faber and Eileen, welcome to the show. I'm so thrilled to have you guys both here. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. So before we kind of get into like the nitty gritty of the conversation, do you guys want to take a little bit of time to, you know, introduce yourselves to the audience, you know, talk a bit about your work and what you do outside of the lab? It's Eileen. Yes. Um, so in, in lab, I'll start with what, what I do in lab. Um, thank you for that great introduction as well. Um, so I am a cancer biologist and, and I'm now a translational cancer biologist. So what that really means is bench to bedside. So I work specifically with tissues from patients. I'm no longer in the basic science, cool, mechanistic side, but instead I'm in biomarker discovery and development. So my overall goal is just to figure out better ways to decide who should be getting what treatment. Um, and to me, that what, why that matters is at the end of the day, quality of life for patients with cancer. Um, so that's my 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 big passion for now um, in in lab, and and I love the work. I've just fallen in love with science again as a postdoc. Um, and outside of the lab, I really like to work out. Um, I love boxing. That's my my favorite thing to do. Um, I think it just helps with the anger a little bit <laughs> when, <you're, laughs> when your experiments fail. Um, and I just honestly, I love to sit on my couch and watch some Netflix with my cats and my partner. Like it's just the <laughs> my favorite thing to do is relax and um, also spending time with with my loved ones for sure. That's always what bring, makes my heart the happiest. That's awesome. And how about you, Favor? Yeah. So it turns out Eileen and I are the same person. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great pick, Christina. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So similarly in the lab, I work in digital biomarker discovery, um, focused for neurodegenerative diseases. So I focus on Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's, just patients with cognitive dysfunction in some way or impairment in some way. And we aim to basically come up with mathematical models, computational models, and ultimately hardware, whether it's sensors, um, wearables, and the likes that can be applied to continuously track precise progression of these impairments. And then obviously at some point, turning it over to folks like Eileen um, and colleagues who can offer some treatment to help regulate um, those sort of symptoms over time. So that's my passion. I absolutely love it. Um, and then outside of the lab, I'm obsessed with sports as a college athlete. So I love doing gymnastics or acrobatics or dance, anything sort of with my body. And being in California, of course, there's no shortage of outdoor sports. So <laughs> I hike, I climb, I boulder, you name it, um, ski. <laughs> there's so much to do. Um, and then I also love spending time with my loved ones. I'm very, very close with my family and friends. So we talk every single day, whether on WhatsApp, text, FaceTime. Um, that's one of my favorite things to do. And I also have a cat. Look at that. Okay. Feline people. Yeah. yeah. I FaceTime my cat. So literally the same. So you guys yeah, are just like super well-rounded, like just like awesome people. That's that's <laughs> what I'm getting out of this essentially. But I'm so glad you guys are both here. And I just like, I really think that you guys are perfect for this episode, but perfect in general for our project steamed because we really want to highlight and show the people that there is already excellent scientists, people of color, people who are from, you know, historically marginalized communities that are doing really great work, you know, and I just hope that people can see themselves in this episode and in the project that we're having. So I'm so excited that you guys are here. So um, we're going to start kind of on like a not so happy tone because <laughs> I like to bring in relevant pieces of our lives into these episodes. And um, recently there was a report about a professor at the University of Pennsylvania Medical School, Dr. Stanley Goldfarb, who I don't want to highlight too much. So I'm just going to say his name one time, um, who said that 
these new anti-racism, quote unquote, med school policies are lowering standards. He was quoted as saying, I understand we need to give people more opportunities, but there are some things you can't sacrifice. This focus on diversity means we're going to take someone with a certain skin color because we think they're okay, that they can do the work, but we're not going to look for the best and the brightest. We're going to look for people who are just okay to make sure we have the right mixture of ethnic groups in our medical schools. He also added that these new policies could eventually hurt minority students who could be viewed as less competent than their white peers. And he and quote, this is the downside of affirmative action. The brilliant black doctors of the future, like a Ben Carson, who was considered one of the premier pediatric neurosurgeons in the world, may be looked at by someone who says, hey, this person doesn't belong at Johns Hopkins. He's only here because they wanted more diversity in the neurosurgery department. And that was in the New York Post. And a lot of people at Penn were very upset with him. They're asking him to resign, but nothing's really happened um, to him. And I don't really think he's apologized for anything he said. And um, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, this is a prime example of the pushback uh, that a lot of us are getting who are trying to make the fields of STEAM a little bit more representative and more inclusive and equitable. Um, how do you guys feel when you hear something like this? Um, so it's... It's not new, right? This is something we hear over and over and over again. And what I always tell people, because, you know, even very well-meaning people will say things like this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I immediately tell them, like, that thought alone is racist. And they, you know, <laughs> have, they clutch their pearls. Just the, it's so misguided that because someone is not white, it means that they're not good enough. Like that, just that one thought process that's all it comes down to right it's just mm -hmm. it's not like it's not that we're diversifying to 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 make everything better right like diversity brings like diversity of thought and it makes in, in science it makes science better all of this we don't they don't think along those lines they're just thinking oh we're just doing it so we can look good but it's just at the root of it you just think that I couldn't possibly be good enough mm -hmm. you know just and it goes beyond the fact that I, I haven't been given the same opportunities as other people right but despite that I'm here. And despite mm -hmm. that, there's so many of us who are here and who are thriving. And it's just the dumbest <laughs> argument, to be honest. <laughs> I, I, I'm i in agreement with Eileen. I think the portion that really stuck out to me was the fact that, you know, he 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 made the, the equivalent conclusion or drawing to, well, if we admit anybody else, then they'd just be okay. I thought that was <laughs> so curious to me how he thought then the admissions committee would suddenly change their standards just to okay for particular candidates from medical school. Yeah. Me it's nuts. Yeah. You know, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's patient lives. Like, I don't yeah. understand maybe the trust he has then in administration to think such a thing could be possible. So that was confusing to me. Um, but I think also it points out to a bigger problem I see every time with people misunderstanding the true meanings of why we use these terms, diversity, equity, and inclusion, I think people just focus on this diversity aspect, which is just to bring more people in. And to them, they're like, well, if you just bring more people in, you're bringing anybody in. But that's mm -hmm. why we always pair these things together, right? And there's even now belonging is added to that. So when we talk about mm -hmm. diversity, when we talk about equity, belonging, inclusion, 
it, it's holistic. It, it, it works in intersectionality with each other. And the goal is to bring in more people who are going to be included in a process who do feel like they belong because the culture has shifted mm-hmm. and to balance scales in ways that give them more power. Those concepts are tied together and it's not just one or the other. So when they seemingly focus on this diversity, bring anybody in, I think sometimes that leads them down and you see those sort of deeper racist thoughts just yes. <laughs> come unfounded. Yeah, no, I think the key thing uh, you guys mentioned all those things uh, that are absolutely relevant and true, but the key phrase that he uses these anti-racism policies. It's like you have a problem with anti-racism. <laughs> it's like you just outed yourself, dude. Yeah. Like I don't like being an anti-racist. <laughs> okay, well let's let's touch let's let's get in there a little bit. What are, what are you saying about yourself, really? And I think this is something I hear more often than not. And I don't just hear it from like, you know, he's like a 70 something year old dude, you know, it's a different generation, different mentality it might take some more time to get that brain to change. But I hear it from young people all the time. I, I really hope that our listeners, whether you are feeling the brunt end of the racism or you are actually being racist yourself, I really hope that you can start by clearing your mind and realizing that the people who are in your fields, they're there because one, they deserve to be there, they want to be there, and they're good enough to be there. There is no lowering of standards to bring in people who are incompetent and can't do their job. Like that's baseline, right? And we talked about this in the women's episode with, um, Katani Brown Jackson, right? Like she, when she was nominated, people were doing the same thing. Oh, it's because she's a black woman. It's like she was the most qualified. Like she had a crazy record. So, you know, I, I know I'm a little bit on my soapbox right now, but <laughs> I just, I just wanted to, um, like really bring this up to kind of start the conversation for people who may have grown up in certain environments who might have certain biases, address them hear yourself okay don't put it on other people who work their ass off to get there just because y'all got some issues okay so anyways (laughs) off my soapbox hi (laughs) um so i want to start at the beginning eileen who or what inspired you to be a translational cancer biologist Um, so i started my my journey into cancer research actually started pretty young um i wanted to go to medical school when I was, I was like, I don't, so I don't really know what I want to do, but like I'm Latina and like, you have to go be a doctor or a lawyer. So I'm going to go be a doctor. You know, this is like what my mom basically told me I had to do. So um, I actually, when I, when I came out of high school, I got into multiple colleges, but I couldn't afford to go. So I Mm. ended up going to a community college for a year. And thankfully I had credits that I had taken as a, as a high school student as well. And because of that, um, I got into this Bridges to Baccalaureate program. And I always like to mention that I went to community college and very much that I am a product of the Bridges programs because down the line, I ended up in a Bridges to Doctorate program as well. And and here I am. So these programs are put into place because there are underrepresented people in this world who just aren't given the same access. And and now that I'm older, I'm really starting to understand that. But anyway, Mm -hmm. going back to that with the Bridges program, that was my first exposure to cancer research. Um, Mm. It was a summer five week intensive where now when I look back, I was not doing anything, but you know, you started to learn 
what it was like to be in the lab. And I, and I loved it. I just fell in love with cancer research. And since then, um, I went on to do my master's in cancer biology, prevention and control. And the PhD was also in tumor biology. Um, and importantly, when I was in under in my undergrad, um, one of my best friends from childhood got diagnosed uh, with Ewing sarcoma. Mm. And she was not given a very long time at the diagnosis, but she lived for many, many years. And that was a big, a big motivator for me was seeing mm-hmm. how the research and the science behind cancer is what made what led to her living so much longer and giving us the opportunity to to be in her presence for a little bit longer. So mm-hmm. she's my I always give her a lot of a lot of credit for for having me leading me towards the cancer field. Wow, that's a beautiful story. Yeah, I think it's always nice to have a I think it's always nice to hear the personal story that led people down their career path. I think this is something we actually brought up almost every episode so far has been as a personal reason why someone chose their field. So, you know, it's not just you're, you're forced down a path or you have to do something. It's like, there's a, there's always a, like a personal event that happens. Right. So how about you favor um, who are what inspired you to become an electrical engineer? Yeah. So again, I feel like Eileen and I are the same person. But yeah, I mean, honestly, I didn't know that I was doing engineering or becoming an engineer until college. Um, I Growing up, I wanted to be a medical doctor and wanted to be a neurosurgeon my entire life. And that was mm-hmm. my thing. My family calls me a nickname doc. And they've done that since I was like, I think six or seven years old. So I've always been obsessed with the brain. I've loved the brain. And I was always like fascinated um, by just being able to work on the brain and you know, Ben Carson, Dr. Ben Carson used to be one of those. I was like, oh my gosh, I lived in Maryland. I grew up in Maryland. Mm-hmm. So Hopkins was down the street. I was like, oh my gosh, it's real. So <laughs> I'd always looked towards that career path. Um, but I got involved with the National Society of Black Engineers when I was around 10 years old. And all I thought was I was just doing robotics competitions. You know, I was in uh, com- competitive sort of STEM programming in my high schools and middle schools. And I thought, I'm going to be competing on Science Bowl. I, I, sh- I should do more of this outside of school. And I, I didn't really know that was what engineering was. I thought engineering was, you know, mechanical engineering and trains and transportation or architecture. Mm. I, didn't, I didn't know what I was playing around with and, and getting all these competitions and awards for was that. Um, so I just sort of kept doing that all the way through high school. And I did, I got to intern at the NIH. I got to, you know, work on some research related to brain related stuff. And that's when I start to, I start to see more of the neurotechnology that was just coming back up again and your devices sort of field. And I was like, what is this? You can build microsurgical tools. Like you can use nanotech. What is this? I was so fascinated because of my robotics background. And I was like, okay, how do I make this work together? So even mm-hmm. in college, I mean, I was, I was pre-med in college. I was still like, gung-ho i'm gonna do med school i'm, I'm gonna take this to the neurosurgery field um, but ultimately again similar to eileen i participated in a bridges program so mine was called lsamp the lewis stokes alliance minority participation program and so basically it allowed me to do research throughout all of college and that was all focused on neuroengineering and i got to go to peru and have this like reckoning with like 300 scientists and engineers who flew in from all over the world wow. and that was like my moment was on stage with like these, you know, it ranged from like students all the way to like incredible experts. And I was like, okay, so graduate school's a thing and research is kind of sick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like, this is, this is me. Yeah. yeah. I was like, oh my gosh. I think it's like 19. And I was like, what is my life? Um, so I just, I, I just realized I was like, oh, this, this is engineering. Okay. <laughs> 
of actually putting problems together and finding solutions in real time and able to see the direct impact. And so I sort of stuck my guns to that. You know, I missed some parental and family confusion um, and ultimately <laughs> applied to grad school and continued the path of electrical engineering. But yeah, I love it. That's such a cool story. So both of you guys mentioned Bridges program. I actually don't know what this is. And I'm sure some of our listeners don't know. And maybe some of our listeners would benefit from knowing. So can you guys explain what these Bridges programs are? Yeah. Yeah. So um, there, there are several. Um, go ahead. I guess no, so. go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sure. Um, so yeah, there are several that um, I, I'm aware of from my experience, at least. So there are ones that help you bridge to um, college, so between high school and college, basically they're preparation programs. Typically they happen over the summer or take place throughout the course of a year. So for example, for my college program, I went to the University of Maryland College Park, they had a summer bridge program. They'd identify about 20 minorities or so coming into the engineering program that they wanted to support with preparatory classes, um, advice, mentorship, et cetera. And that would help ease your transition into the engineering program and find you and give you a community, which ends up being a good head start um, to a lot of minorities in engineering. And so that was great. Um, and then the bridge to LSAM, bridge doctorate program through LSAM, that happened throughout college. And basically, as long as you met the requirements of this program, like actively conducting research and getting to present it and getting to attend workshops that develop your research skills, they helped you apply to uh, doctorate programs and your doctorate program would be fully covered. Um, so fellowship, fully covered for your doctorate program. And That's then amazing. lastly, yeah, I actually also did a Bridges program into Stanford for grad school. So it was called Summer First. And again, I don't know, this is my life, so coincidental, which means <laughs> I, I took it as a sign, I'm doing the right thing. Uh, but I got into this program. So I started my PhD literally a month after I finished um, undergrad. So I started in the summer in wow. June. Mm -hmm. Yeah, spent the summer doing research with a professor, a faculty member early on, got to attend so many useful workshops, found my community early on. And so by the time everyone was coming in full quarter, late September, I was like, I know where to go. Yeah, That is really cool. And Eileen, what about your bridge programs? What were those like? I mean, it's really similar. So the the first one I did was the, the Bridges of Baccalaureate because, and it was designed, I went to one of the state schools in New York was where I did my undergrad SUNY purchase. Um, and I do want to give them props because that was the first one. And Dr. Joseph Scrivenek, who is like the definition of an ally, I think you should just put his picture into the book. Um, mm -hmm. He was recruited by the state and he's actually implemented it across the different SUNYs, which is like 30 some odd SUNY yeah, schools. Uh, yeah, it's it's incredible. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. And he's also now done something, um, one of those programs that is at the faculty level as well, bringing in people to do sort of like a little bit of a junior faculty position with sort of or like a postdoc type thing with the promise of a faculty position, which mm -hmm. is pretty assuming you do well, obviously, but it's it's incredible, like the, the sort of programming that he's done. Um, so mine was designed um, and they're very strict about using the NIH def definition of an underrepresented minority. So it was people of all race backgrounds, you know, it was, it, it's all, the, all across the board, low socioeconomic status, um, you know, Latino, mm -hmm. brown, Latinx, um, black, everything. Um, and it just gave you exposure, like exposure to research. And it was across fields. So like there were, I did cancer, but there was psychology, there was neuro, um, and I can't even remember everything else now, chemistry, organic chemistry. So it really gave you exposure in the lab Mm -hmm. Um, and it helped you apply to four-year programs. And then mm -hmm. from there, 
um, when I did the Bridges to Doctorate program, it was actually a master's program. So this mm-hmm. was right after I, I finished college a little bit early just because I, I was paying out of pocket. I was working multiple jobs and I was like, I can't do this anymore. So oh, I know um, that feeling yeah, it, <laughs> so it well, awful. actually. Yeah. yeah, it's it's awful. So I, I, I finished early and I ended up working in the medical field in a women's imaging facility. And while I was there, I was studying for the MCAT because I was so sure I was going to be a, a doctor. I was like the stereotypical textbook pre-med kid. Uh, <laughs> and I, I found out about this program and it was in cancer biology prevention and control. So it was a little bit of, it was biology focused, but also touched on the epidemiological side mm-hmm. and the community side of cancer. Um, and the goal was to bring people, underrepresented minorities um, to DC. And it was through the University of the District of Columbia and Georgetown, a consortium program. And it gave you a master's. So you worked for two years. It paid, it paid for your first year. You got a stipend. Um, and it like prepped you to apply for doctorate programs as well. And it was again just exposure. I got into the into the lab there. I took classes at Georgetown. That's where I fell in love with with the institution and why I ended up doing my PhD there. Um, and it just I I don't know that I would have done the PhD without that program because mm. I even when I applied I was like maybe I'll do it. I'll do an MD PhD then <laughs> because mm-hmm. I was just so con- I was so convinced that I was going to do the MD part. But once I was in there and and really when I started to do work with the community, I was like okay. I think the PhD is the, the the route for me and it feels like the right fit for me. Yeah. Wow. Those are, those sound really great at these Bridges programs. And so just a little like information for our listeners, the NIH has these um, guidelines as to who is considered an underrepresented minority. And you may be surprised that you might be a URM, even if you're not, uh, you know, like, uh, black, Latino, or indigenous, if you are first generation, low income, I believe you have to qual. there's two, at least two, you have to at least to have two uh, features to qualify. But if you do qualify, don't be shy to look into these programs. Um, these programs are made so that you have opportunities and access to really see what you can do and see like, you know, what you might be interested in. I mean, just listen to Favor and Eileen and their passion. Like I, all I got right now is like, these two people love what they do. They're so excited about what they're doing. They found they're in their water, you know, it's like their environment. And so you might find your environment by doing a program like this. So we'll have the resources on our website as well, but you know, look, look into them, check them out. This might be something for you. Um, so thank you for sharing that. So in episode one, uh, we talked about how women in general are still underrepresented in STEAM. So women represent about 52% of college educated, uh, of the college educated workforce, but only 29% of science and engineering workforce. Um, And we discussed how the lack of representation influences and impacts our entry into STEAM, but also our retention and overall success. And basically we talked about how it's harder to network and feel like you belong and have room at the table if there's so few of you in the room. And so um, the stats are worse for black indigenous and women of color, right? So for, I believe those numbers are black women represent only 2.5% of science and engineering workforce. Latina and Hispanic women make up only 2.3% and indigenous women make up only 0.07%. and these numbers are terrible, but if you go higher up the ladder, like faculty, uh, the numbers are even worse. So when you hear those kinds of numbers, um, how do you feel? And how has the lack of representation 
impacted or influenced your academic and career choices? Yeah, this is a really good question. Um, I, when you like, and I know these numbers too, right? Like I, mm-hmm. I write about these things often. So, but even so, like I, I, I'm hearing it and it just makes me so angry because I know just how many incredible humans are out there who are brilliant, mm-hmm. who, if they were given the opportunity, the right opportunities, you know, they, they would be thriving just as much. And even if those who are given the opportunity, I feel like this kind of circles back to what we originally talked about where you're, it's just this assumption that we're just not as good for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also makes me angry. And then it puts the fire under me and in a really, really good way where it just makes me want to encourage even more people to, to go for it. Because I, I think that's one of the, I, I, a few years ago, I sat and thought about it. I was like, oh, I have never, I didn't see a black scientist, a black woman scientist, female scientist until I was in graduate school. Yeah. And then from there, I didn't have black female colleagues and, you know, or Afro Latino uh, colleagues really until a postdoc level. Like, mm. and I'm old, <laughs> you know, like that's, it. that's a long time to be going through and not ever seeing someone like you. And, and I say this all the time to to my friends, you know, it's just, you don't know what you don't have until you have it. Like once mm-hmm. I finally got it, I was like, oh, this is what I've been missing. I'm like, this is how people feel. I feel like the, with the Black Panther movie, when that came out, I remember that was like a, a, a meme going around. I was like, this is how white people feel all the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I feel with like having, when I see people who look like me in, in these mm-hmm. spaces. And it's something that just makes me want to fight a little bit more and, and keep doing the sort of programming that we do and, and just uplifting others as, especially the younger generations and encouraging them to go for it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I was very fortunate in that my my mother just is a very unrelenting woman and she's just like, whatever you want to do, you're going to do it. Like, it doesn't yeah. matter. So I when someone tells me I can't do something, it just makes me want to do it more. Mm-hmm. Just and I and I don't fail. Like I go for it. It might take me much longer to get there, but I do get there. So, yeah, that's. That's awesome. I, I can imagine you don't fail very much. I mean, you're just like this powerhouse. Like I, every time I meet you or hear about you or work with you, I'm just like, what does she not do? <laughs> like, how could she sleep. be so I was like, how could she be so good? Like this morning, you went to a spin class at like six in the morning. I'm like, this woman's insane. But anywho. Yes. <laughs> what about you, Favor? How do you feel? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a great question. And yeah, Eileen always hits the mark with her responses. Um I think I think when I hear the statistics, I think so much Eileen, I'm very familiar with them. And um it just makes me think, unfortunately, that's that's my reality as well. So it's 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 sad because it's no longer shocking. Um there's mm-hmm. almost a sort of desensitization to hearing those statistics over and over. I was the only black woman in the double electrical in the electrical engineering program, a PhD program recruited last year at Stanford. Um this mm-hmm. year we have three. And so okay. the shift to that, it was, it was incredible, right? To watch the reactions um, and talking to people and they're like three and everyone's like, oh my gosh, this is like historical. And I just sort of sat there and I felt my heart sink. And I was like, oh my God, this is what we cheer for. Three. Yeah. Three. And I think I'm the eighth. I think I fall around six, sixth to eighth black woman in the EE graduate program ever recruited. <gasps> ever recruited. <laughs> Right. Um, so, I, yeah, hearing the statistics, unfortunately, I'm at a point now where I'm like, hmm, there's just work to be done. Mm-hmm. And so my goal is in mentoring. A lot of that is just like, how do I just get as many people to the pipeline as possible? So mm-hmm. I literally had actually a few weeks ago, um, this wonderful black woman come stay with me over the weekend. And 
through um, the Black Graduate Student Association here, the Black Engineering Graduate Association, we hold a program called uh, Surge. And it's basically, again, URM, we get them on campus, expose them to faculty early on, help them with grad school prep. And we're doing as much as possible to stay on them and are like, listen, if you come to Stanford, we got you. You have people who will care for you, who will provide for you. We'll do that. We can't guarantee, unfortunately, that your department is going to do that. The school is going to do that. But at least you know that you have us um, because we Mm. know what you're going to go through. So it just makes me think, yeah, I I just want to protect and nurture as many incoming as people as possible because I didn't I didn't get to have that being the only one so yeah that's so I so I mentioned this in like I do like I did this like introductory podcast to set up steamed and I talked about my very first mentor Dr. uh, Sherilyn Gordon Burroughs she was a black female transplant surgeon I went to college a long time ago (laughs) I'm also a little bit old but um, (laughs) this was back in well I guess not that long time like 2007 2008 and at the time the uh, at UCLA the Department of Transplant Surgery had three women um, and one black person who was Dr. Gordon and she was just incredible like I mean everything she's like smart professional like she was this kind of like like she was too high for me <laughs> like she was like this role model that like was seemed so perfect right and she she just um she really gave me the opportunity to be where i am now without her i would have never gone to grad school without her i would not have even i can't even imagine being where i am now without her because i was also first generation low income i worked full time while going to college my grades were absolute shit and um, she let me do research with her and she opened that door for me. And I remember one of our conversations, we we're walking on campus and I was still working at the coffee shop. And she was like, when are you going to quit your job? I was like, oh, I, I can't. I, <laughs> I need the money. She's like, how about you don't work there and I pay you to do research and with me? Like, because I was doing research with her for free because for me, it like looks good for my application or whatever I want to do in the future. Like she had no reason no reason to offer to pay me so that I didn't have to do this like crap job at the coffee shop. And that was the first time somebody was like, I see you and let me help you. Like, so you can be the best that you can be. That was like, just like, whoa, you know? And she like completely changed my life and she mentored so many people and um, that's just who she was, right? And so I think what you guys are doing, you guys are the Dr. Gordons for a lot of young women and men and whoever out there who want to do this that may feel like they don't belong. I think if one person like opens that door for you and like kind of goes, you know what, you can do this. Let me just give you a little bit of something. And it doesn't have to be money. Sometimes it's just words. It makes such a huge impact. Like I think about her and my heart just like... <sighs> Anyways, okay, I'm not, okay. I gotta move on before I cry. Yeah. So um, uh, you're making me tear up now. Thinking I know. About the uh, story. Yeah, she's like she completely changed my life. So for me, you know, this this whole project, this whole idea of building um, social capital, building this network, is so that um, our listeners find their Dr. Gordon. Right. <laughs> That's like my hope. Right. So thank you for sharing that. All of that information about you know how you guys felt and what your plan is to make others feel like they do belong. 
So the other question I had for you guys was we in episode four, we talked about networking and the importance of people, you know, friends, colleagues, mentors um, in our lives. And we talked about how our network, our social capital can really help us navigate our fields of interest and keep us like sane and healthy as we go through our training and work our way up the ladder. And so do you guys have a network that you'll lean on? And, you know, what kind of role has that network played in your success? and well-being? That's that's a fantastic question. I think there's now the, the term going out or is it the phrase, your network is your net worth. And mm-hmm. that's, that's a little catchy thing now. <laughs> so I fully, fully agree with that, especially where I'm at. It is very visible in Silicon Valley to realize the realities of such a thing. Um, I am very grateful. I think similar to you, Christina, my, I somehow, I'm so blessed that throughout undergrad, all of the women, all the, the researchers I did research with were women. Mm. I don't know how <laughs> I managed to find these like one and only ones in their departments, but somehow um, these were my greatest mentors ever. And similar to you, if I hadn't had them, God knows the truth. I would not be here today. I would not even have thought to apply this. I, I could never, I remember even crying to one of them um, on Zoom when I was applying to grad school and, you know, she, she went to MIT Dr. Leilani Battle. She's fantastic. She's now at UW and she was encouraging me, right? She's like, no, just apply. I'll write your recommendation letter. And I was like, MIT I'd never like to MIT like of course definitely to MIT I've seen your CV girl I'm like what do you mean like hello I was like oh maybe I'll apply to UMD and maybe like a little bit you know um but just women like that I think um completely transformed how I think how I operate how I did research how 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 much of a learner I was how curious I was so that's been a great influence on me and then also Allyship, I think, has been great. I've had great mentors who are men um, that I've met along the way who have been very open. I'm very grateful, right? And they're like, hey, I don't know how to mentor you. I've never mentored mm-hmm. somebody like you. My current PI, mm. right, is, is, is a man. Um, it's not an underrepresented minority. And, you know, he's very clear with me. I, I don't know what your needs are. I know mm. what the typical needs are of a grad student because that wasn't so long ago for me. But I don't know what's specific to you. So you have to work with me. And as long mm. as you tell me, I'll do my best to provide that for you. And I thought that was such a fantastic way to do it because it's almost like it was mentoring up, right? He was allowing yes. me to let me lead him to mentor me because he didn't know better. Um, so I think that's been a great aspect as well to incorporate in my network. And in Reliance, I also, I love mentorship from like older people, like older, older people. I don't know what it is. When I'm, you I'm say old, you don't people. mean like 30, right? Because we, <laughs> we we know you're young. I but let's that. Let's... I knew you were going to say that. That's why I said older, older. Okay, okay. Because we young. We're still young, okay? <laughs> no, you are lovely. You're 25. <laughs> yes, in my mind. But no, no, no. I love like older relationships, like grand, grand types. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so I'm, I'm Cameroonian by origin, which is in Central Africa. And we just have this huge cultural thing for like the elderly and wisdom. And mm-hmm. I've just found, especially the black community here in the States, there's just so much to learn about history mm-hmm. from them. So I love, those have been some of my best ones. Some of my mentors actually, they were visiting their kids and decided to drive all the way down and just come have lunch with me. I was like, you know, you don't have that's, to do that. And they told so me nice. all about New Orleans. It was so beautiful. And I was like, what is my life? Like, why do I have these random people who care about me so much? Um, because so you're awesome. Just... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It's like but good yeah, energy. I, I diversify it. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope so. I hope that's the reason. <laughs> that is absolutely the reason. It, here's the thing: like, just listening to you, you like have this. You radiate this like positive energy, and what you send out, the universe brings right back to you. Right so back. those people can feel you, and you're like, yeah, awesomeness. So they're like, I want some of that. I need to be around this because today I need a boost. That's what happened. Okay, <laughs> that's so great to hear. Okay. Yeah. And how about you, Eileen? Yeah. Um, I love everything Favor just said. So definitely the the mentorship and what you were mentioning before, Christina, too, um, that I was tearing up hearing your story. And then I started thinking about about my mentors that I've had who have been so fortunate to have in my life. And, you know, thinking about when we are surrounded by people who are like, well, people of color is just we're just bringing them in mm-hmm. for a number, you know. I think about the people who saw something in me mm-hmm. when no one else would and how they uplifted me and and gave me the opportunities and, you know, really the sponsors that that exist. And mm-hmm. I, I, I know for a fact that there were people who didn't want me to get into the PhD program I got into. And I know for a fact exactly who stood up and said, no, this person is good. This person, we're going to give a chance. And, mm-hmm. you know, they they I don't know if it was a gamble or not, but I mean, it paid off You know, at the end of the yeah. day. It was it was the right decision. And I'm glad that there's those those sponsors that exist that just will advocate for you when you're not in the room, who will fight mm-hmm. for you, who will see what you have and see that you could be incredible if you're given the opportunity to be so. Um, so beyond mentorship, though, because and I, I, I've, I have been very fortunate with my mentorship as well. Um, my grad school mentor, Dr. Riggins, um, she's this like fireball young woman who just I was her second graduate student. Um, and she is, she's incredible. She was so good at knowing exactly what everyone needed and just really took care of us the way we needed to. And now my, my mentor's a, a male, an older white male, and he's really good too. He's also the same way in that like he, he knows, he, he picks up on what your strengths are and then has you really blossom in that space, which I think is so, so important. But beyond that, I think I have like my, my peer mentors who have mm. really impacted, um, the, not only my science, but, you know, my, just my being, my, my, my being a scientist. Um, mm-hmm. I think about how Twitter really brought all these people, a lot of these people into my life, um, especially mm-hmm. like as a postdoc um, mm-hmm. and this network that I have now, that's just incredible. And I, I am astonished. Um, I think it was a few weeks ago, the CZI scholars got announced and I, the, the Chan Zuckerberg Institute, yeah. they have this mm-hmm. like, uh, it's like a five year, whole lot of money thing. And I, obviously didn't apply or anything and I just sat home and I was crying and I just felt like so happy and so I was like oh my god I know a lot of these people like I personally know a lot of these people and I know how brilliant they are and I know the work that they do and those are the type of people who have uplifted me and uplifted others beyond me you know and it's just Mm -hmm. it's so incredible to see and it's 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 awesome because I I feel like I've learned so much from them that I never learned from any faculty never learned from any books um even when I think about negotiating, you know, like the mm-hmm. the stuff I've learned from from my friend AJ Hinton, he's he's so good and he writes about it all the time too. And he's the one that's like, no, know your worth and ask for it and go for it. And it's it's incredible how how it makes a difference too when you have that support. Yeah. I think this is something that we really are trying to like 
you know, hammer into our listeners and to anyone who wants to be involved with Project Steamed is that the real main goal of this entire project, this podcast and the website is to help people build this network, the social capital. And now, I mean, COVID really showcased how powerful the internet is, how social, how powerful social media is. And you can make connections without physically meeting the person and they can still be in your corner and they can still help you, talk to you, encourage you. So, you know, it's so good to hear that you guys have the support system that, you know, um, inside and outside of your environment to help you guys really thrive and, you know, navigate your journeys. And so um, the question I want to ask then is, you know, going back a little bit with the statistics, given that there are so few faculty who are women of color, did you... did you find it challenging or do you still find it a little bit challenging to find like mentors or like, how did you go about finding like your squad, like your people? That's an interesting question because I think what I've done is I, I, I go, when you were talking about uh, like favors, just her aura and her positive vibes, I think I go yeah. after positive vibes as well. <laughs> um, and I, I've learned to really trust my gut on on things like so for example you know if we were talking about the diversity equity inclusion belonging space there are a lot of champions in that space but there are some people who are in this space that maybe mean well but don't really follow through as much and there are also people in the space who don't actually mean well so with that it's looking beyond what they say Mm -hmm. (laughs) and really getting a sense if they if they're saying are they saying harmful things or not are they mm-hmm. are they making little backwards comments you know those are the type of people that i try to avoid mm-hmm. um and just try to i think yeah it's just all about the vibes for me to be honest when it's come to mentorship and i do think i've been very lucky because i've heard horror stories about mentors yeah. and i've been very very fortunate and having really great peer mentors as well. Um, mm-hmm. And people who like, everyone always likes to talk, right? And they like to advise and they're like, don't don't make my mistake. And that's something I try to do as well for others. It's like, okay, don't do this, do this, don't do this. These are all my mistakes. You take what you need from, from here. And those are kind of the, the people that I try to, that I gravitate towards and I try to have in my life as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You too, no, Fari? I plus one all of that. I think <laughs> my experience has definitely been, I'm sure I remember doing this a few weeks ago when we were trying to host the search program for the undergrads. And we we tried to find um, women of color faculty who could be on our panel um, in engineering and uh, not a great search. <laughs> I mm. think we had less than a handful, um, which just not encouraging. And so I, I knew that like when I applied to the electrical engineering department, I knew, you know, there was no one. Um, so can't really have that um, in my department. And so I had to be intentional in terms of just finding values. So similar to Eileen, it's just who is somebody that at the end of the day, because they say, you know, mentorship, especially like your PR advisor relationship is a marriage. And so I was like, okay, well, what, what do I look for in a partner? And how can I truly find this in mentors? So it, it boiled down to values. Our personalities might not be similar. Our experience levels clearly are not similar because they're freaking giants in the field. So <laughs> I just had to find somebody who I think um, had similar values as me, res- could respect me and respect my lack of uh, experience and valued that in some way as innovation or creativity. Um, and so I think I was able to find it after some trial and tribulations. And I think, again, similar to Eileen, my peer mentors were a great resource for me. I specifically have grad mentors. I think I have probably like at this point, six to eight of them. 
I love mentors. I think they're fantastic. <laughs> we just go out for coffee, you know, with random people. And I'm just like, hey, tell me about your experience with this. And they're like, horror story. Don't take this class. <laughs> Don't go to this profession. Like, do not, no matter what you do. And that's been so amazing for me because I've witnessed it in real time, right? I've heard from amazing people, my sponsors who are in these places listening for me, tell me, hey, faculty have said this about you. They're so worried that you're out there doing all these other things, diversity, uh, equity, belonging, inclusion. Yes. You're not focused, you know? So they oh, I hate that word, so you're not focused. Yeah. <laughs> you're not focused, you know? We just, we just worry, we worry for you. And I was like, mm-hmm. that's, that's so interesting because when I look at their backgrounds, they were also presidents of committees. So that's so interesting that mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm doing it. I'm not focused. Um, but yeah, I think, I think I've been able to balance definitely having, you know, sponsors like my current PI again, you know, not an underrepresented minority by any chance, but he, he goes hard for me. He tells me the tea. He gives it all to me. He's like, Hey, <laughs> I had these conversations about getting you support for this. They told me this about you. He was like, but I know you. I know the type of person that you are and I wouldn't work mm-hmm. with you. So I'll get it for you. I'll write the grant. I'll do this. And I was like, okay, I don't need you to look like me to understand me and mm-hmm. be my best advocate. And so I think I've, I found that balance. That's really good. I'm, I'm glad you guys are sharing these, these, uh, these tools because, you know, I think it can be very overwhelming and intimidating if you are the only or you feel like your experience is very different from the people in the, in the room. And so um, feeling people's energies, feeling how they're really, what what are they really saying? Listen to their words. I think who, okay, I'm going to mess this up. I forget which author said this, but is it Toni Morrison? When people show you who they are, believe, believe them. them. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I mean, it's hard, but you want to also have a critical eye. Like, don't go in there being like, everyone's out to help me. Not some, some yes, some not. So, you know, be a little bit critical and listen to the words that they say. Look at their actions, right? And don't just, um, you know, and and don't also be afraid to ask for help because there are people out there who might not look like you, who might not have your lived experience, but they really do want to help you too. So then... I want to flip the switch a little bit. So you guys are clearly leaders and you guys do so many things. So do you ever feel pressure to be a role model to like, is there like a pressure for you to now, you know, set a certain standard or like lead the way? Do you guys feel any pressure with that? Interestingly, I, maybe this is wrong, but, but no, cause I think I just, maybe the pressure is myself because I can't help myself, <laughs> but <laughs> You know, w- with that, I just, I always thrive, like just thrive, strive to be the best version of myself, no matter mm-hmm. what. And if I, if I take something on, I'm going to, I'm going to do it full force, right? Like I'm not going to take something on. Well, I'm learning to not take things on that I can't do <laughs> fully. So I'm learning the power of no now, you know, mm-hmm. now a little bit. So it's taken me a while to get there. Um, but I think the important thing for me is to just continue to try, right? And like, we all fail. And I, I, one of the big things I've always been really passionate about is, is showing failure as well. I showed a little bit too much, I think. So I need, I'm trying to go the opposite direction a little bit mm-hmm. I, I, and, and try to get more to the middle, but, you know, also showing, showing the failures and showing that, Hey, like I tried and I failed and nothing happened. Like I'm still here and I'm still, I'm still thriving in other ways. Right. Like mm-hmm. I just, cause I, 
I didn't get, you know, I applied to like 10 grants my first year as a postdoc and I got, I got two. So it's like not a bad number, but like, that's, that's a good, that, that is a very good success but rate actually. <laughs> but it's eight that I didn't get though. Right. And like that's even true. beyond that, like <laughs> I've applied to so many and like mostly, you know, I have to like email the grants office every 60 days, 60 days after they're like, Hey, how, what's the status? I'm like, didn't get this one either. <laughs> you know, I know, but <laughs> I know that feeling way too well. Yeah. <laughs> Like, are you going to remind me that I didn't get it? Thanks. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I, I guess I like to be as, as authentic as possible. Um, because I, I know that I'm doing things with the best intentions as well. Um, and Mm. I think if I ever see that I'm maybe doing something that's a little bit, a little bit too self-serving, because I think it's okay to be a little self-serving, then it's, it's a moment that I need to step back and like check in and then, and then move forward. Mm -hmm. How about you, Favor? Do you feel any pressure? Yeah, no, I, I definitely say I do. Um, I can't align <laughs> to myself. I say I don't. Um, I think it, it comes from many angles, right? For me, it's not even just academic or professional. It's, it's even cultural. Um, mm. I'm the first daughter in my family. I hold a lot of responsibilities, a lot of siblings. And for us, you know, I'm the first many things, you know, first mm. to get a degree, first to get an engineering, first to go to grad school, first to get, you keep naming it first Cameroonian to be in the leadership positions that I have. So for my country, even mm-hmm. right. I represent so much. And so I'd be lying if I say, I don't carry that burden with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but funny enough against sort of Eileen, I think I put more <laughs> pressure on myself than they do. <laughs> Cause at the end of the day, I know my people are already proud of what I've accomplished. So if I were to stop here, that's enough for them. They're like, Whoa, we saw you mentioned Cameroon in this article. And like these million people saw it. Whoa. But for me, I'm like, oh, girl, <laughs> you just started. There's so much more you could do. Um, mm. So I definitely put the pressure on myself. I think not so much to be a role model, but I think just to show people the possibilities. So to be as dynamic as possible. That's what mm. I put the pressure on myself for. I like to show people, you know, you don't have to be so linear. You don't have to, I guess, ascribe and fit in exactly mm. to what the community that accepts you is asking for. And mm. I like to sort of you know, be that quirky sort of like, who are you? Why are you doing these things? I'm doing them. So you know that you can do any of them. You don't have to do mm. all, but Ooh, I like pick that. One and know that somebody like you could do it. Um, so that's, that's the kind of pressure I put on myself, which gets intense sometimes. So <sighs> I'm learning now definitely to phase some things out, um, mm-hmm. but I'm excited for that. Cause then I'll have more time just to, I think, continue to discover myself, but mm-hmm. it's, it's been good so far. Yeah, the reason I I wanted to ask this question was um, I have mentees that belong to historically marginalized communities, whether they are people of color or first generation low income. And a lot of times they find themselves feeling like they are they have this burden to be like the representative of whichever community they came from. And so especially if they're in a room or in a meeting or a program where they really are the only person that either looks like them or walked a similar life path. And, you know, I've always tried to tell them like, that is such a huge burden. Like you shouldn't be the representative. Like that's not fair. But like, how do you, how do you, uh, yeah. Okay. Let me, let me start this question over. Um, Have either of you ever felt this way? Like you had to be some kind of representative for your respective communities and if so how did you process that so that that kind of unrelenting weight is not on you I think all the time (laughs) I think all the time that's true um I think even my you know my participation on the DI community for committee for my department 
that came out because, you know, they saw my leadership in Nesby and they were like, hey, hey, black woman, whoa, we need to, you know, so I, I know that they're looking at me for those things. I mean, even conversations, people who are having conversations, somebody mentions DEI and you see pe- people's heads just pivot. Favor, mm. what do you think? What do you think about then drawing up plans for this? What do you think? What what suggestions do you have? And I'm like, mm. people are not doing the research or work themselves. They sort of just find mm-hmm. somebody who looks like what they think or whom they think should be doing that work. And they sort of dump it on that mm. person. And that, that's been my experience a lot of times. Um, how I've learned to work with that is honestly bringing more people into the pipeline. I don't reject the work because I find at this point in the spaces that I'm at, it would be a disservice to many others coming up for me to do so. So I don't reject that work. What I try to do is, okay, give me that work. How can I partner with somebody else? So Mm. my mentees coming in who are first years now, hey, I'm going to step off this committee next year. You're going in my stead, right? And and, and so on and so forth. Or broaden knowledge of it, share it more with the Black Graduate Student Association. Hey, these opportunities exist. You can be committee members. You can be officers for these. Apply to your departments now. So doing Mm. more of that work, but... Yeah, it's a balance for me. And I just know right now I can't say no because my institution is just so far behind that me saying no just creates so many more problems around the line. Mm, yeah. Wow. Huh. How I about you, say, Eileen? Yeah. One thing that's uh, sticking out to me from what Favor is saying too is, and, and I, I we always say this too, I feel like with my with the co-founders of the Black Post Association, we, we talk a lot. We talk all the time. But one of the things we say is how the burden does fall on the shoulders, usually of usually on women of color, right? Like mm-hmm. usually when it's underrepresented minorities, and it, it tends to be women. I don't know why. Um, and women are just better, right? We're, we're just amazing. <laughs> we're we just are amazing. Better, <laughs> we're just better human beings. Okay, that extra X chromosome just immediately we makes us more. better yeah. human beings. <laughs> yes, for sure, for sure. Um, so that's something I know. I, I try to like stay a little bit cognizant of that, but yep. I I'm really bad with protecting other people's time and not protecting my own. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that comes back to like the self-pressure and everything. But one thing that I, I I do think about in like kudos to therapy for this one is like, I have to remember that it really doesn't matter what I do. Like if someone already has a thought, you know, like the likelihood of me changing their mind is like slim to none, right? Like mm-hmm. if there's a hundred people in the room, like maybe I'll be able to change a few minds. And that's why I I persevere and do the things mm-hmm. that I do because eventually those people will disseminate this information, mm-hmm. right? And it'll keep spreading. Um, but like, I, I try not to put that much pressure on it because I'm like, these people, number one, they don't matter. <laughs> like they don't, like at the end of the day, they don't really matter in my life, right? Mm-hmm. And their opinion is stupid. <laughs> so, and, and, <laughs> what they think and it's it's not going to change right what they think isn't going to change no matter no matter what i do so i think it's just it's about persevering despite this but also like reminding myself like it's okay and i'm trying i'm really actively working on trying to be kind as kind to myself as i am to others yeah. and reminding myself like it's okay to not do this and it's okay you'll get here with saying no it's okay to say no because like everything shouldn't be on your shoulders right mm-hmm. everything shouldn't be on our shoulders because we still have to be scientists and engineers on top yes, of that we right do. like we still have to do all these other things so it's it's a lot to it's a lot to t- it's a lot to take on yeah i mean there have been several um studies now showing that women of color typically carry the emotional burden and do a lot of the dei work there's this kind of um it's almost like, oh, well, you're a woman, so you're n- nurturing, right? That's the stereotype. And then you're like a woman of color. So obviously, 
you know, this should be of interest to you. Yeah. And so you should do all the work. We'll just, you know, watch on the sidelines, maybe take a little bit of a credit here and there. But, <laughs> um, no, so, th- you know, what, I, what I've said to my mentees before is that, you know, your success, your well-being has to come first. Um, I remember a friend of mine saying something like, it was a quote, but it was like, morality begins with me. Like, you have to be moral to yourself. Like if you are hurting yourself in the process of helping others, you're hurting the humanity that's within you, right? So, you know, um, I, it's it's amazing. The work that you guys do and the work that you guys have done is just like, it's it's awesome and wonderful. And I just want, you know, our listeners to understand, like there will be times when you can't say no, as Favor says, like it is really up to you to make that change. But there are gonna be times when you're done and you might just be like, I can't do this anymore. And that is absolutely okay too. Like you have every right to say no. You have every right to be like, I got my project. I got my stuff I've got to do. And I kind of have to come first because you are also part of that community, part of the humanity that you're trying to save and improve. So I really hope that you know our listeners, as encouraged as you are and as, as passionate as you are and as much responsibility as you may have, also know that you are responsible for yourself too. Like as Eileen was saying, practicing kindness with yourself is so important and just know that you can't give from an empty well. So sometimes you might have to step back, fill your well back up, and not give anybody anything for a little while. <laughs> and that is absolutely okay. All right. The whole world has plenty of people out there. <laughs> um, and they can take a break a little. You can take a break every once in a while. Let the world figure stuff out on its own. Just a little bit here and there. Um, but yeah. So, you know, I, I like because we're talking about a lot of the DEI work. I know that Eileen and Favor, you guys have both been in a lot of different initiatives and groups and communities that... Um, do a lot of DEI work. And so I want to ask, how does now doing that work, how has that impacted your, you know, focus, your like research focus, your actual career? Like, is there, is there kind of like a cost benefit? Is there like a profit or not profit? Is there a benefit from doing this kind of DEI emotional labor? Like, how does that trickle into your, you know, um, actual research work? Um, yeah, I love that you. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Let me think some no. more. <laughs> I love that you um, are asking this because I actually was just having this conversation the other day talking <laughs> about this, and um, you know, because for the most part, I feel like this work. I've, I've been doing this work since I was like an undergrad, right? I've been doing this type of. When we're in the spaces, we're in these spaces <laughs> for a long time, um, and it usually is like frowned upon and as terrible mm-hmm. as the pandemic was um and as ridiculous as this like urgency the someone called it the white urgency of 2020 <laughs> that happened and i was like that's <laughs> a really good way to put it right where it was like all right everyone make a committee let's go let's do this we have to do it we have to do it we have to do it um as burdensome as it has become to in some cases it's also was great because it has forced people to acknowledge the need for this right mm-hmm. um and I've now lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. No, you're, you're, you're on there. So basically the question was, how has the DEI work trickled in and impacted yes. your work work? Yes, yeah. yes. Sorry, thank you. So with yeah, that, that's, that's exactly where I was going with that is 
it became something that people are caring about. And what I love is that the NIH is really caring about it. So that's yes. Then I knew to, it knew exactly what it was doing by doing by by putting these like requirements in because now they have to think about it, right? Because it's their mm-hmm. money and they have to think about it. And because of that, um, it is being acknowledged. And there are these programs like the Intersection Science Fellow Symposium that Christine and I met through. Um, yeah. And there's other fellows. I, you know, I was Duke had a program that I participated in this year. Uh, the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center has a program that I went to this year as well. Um, and with that, though, I, I recognize I'm like, OK, my science, I, I think I do pr- some pretty good science. Right. I'm in a really powerful. Yes, lab, you do. A great lab. Yeah. <laughs> and it's you know, it's it's like I said, my, my mentor sets us all up for success, to be honest. Like it's been really great and it's been e- easy to produce stuff out of that lab, which has been great. But the reason I've gotten the recognition that I've gotten is because of the DEI work. And it's so fulfilling to finally mm. be able to be like, told y'all <laughs> this was good, right? Like I it's because I'm a I'm a good scientist, but it's also because of this other work that I'm doing that yeah. there's finally like sort of a space to recognize that. And I it's it's really validating to be in these yeah. spaces now. And you know, all that lack of sleep and all that anxiety, it, it just makes it worth it because we're making it better for the next generation, right? We're making it better for mm-hmm. the people coming up behind us. We're holding that elevator for the next person. Um, but at the same time, like just just thriving as well, which is, it's it's feels so good, honestly. Yes, yes, yes. It's not or, it's and. You're, you're a and. scientist, that's excellent. And you're doing all of this incredible DI work and it's finally paying off. It took a while, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, it's yeah. paying off. <laughs> How about you, Favor? How has your your work with being, you know, the national chairperson, how like you you have all these like roles now. So how has that affected your your you know your focus in engineering? Yeah, no, I I definitely think sustainably, like looking at its perspective, it's definitely complementary to this. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it's it's interesting to me because I think what I've received in academia sometimes is that folks see, you know, DEI work as less technical or, mm. you know, it's, it's soft work, it's side work. It's, mm-hmm. it's not, you know, it's not something that should be seen or regarded as to the same level as mm-hmm. you do engineering. And so sometimes I feel like it, it comes at a cost, right. And folks think maybe that I'm less um, technical focused or less technically able, which doesn't make sense. Like you have my transcript. So and I've, <laughs> I've seen them. I've mean. seen your CV. It's pretty intense. Yeah, I'm like, Hello guys. I'm like 10 years old robotics that. championships and stuff. I mean, I'm just saying, <laughs> I don't think I knew how to open any kind of machinery. Like I still can't. I'm like technologically yeah. really just, it's, it's horrible. My husband has literally said to me, Christina, how have you lived to this day? Like how, like, I don't know. My brain works in one way. I cannot do the engine. Like, no. So anyway, sorry. Continue. No, okay. I could not do what y'all do either. So it, it works out. You know, I used to grow cultures for a while and I was like, yeah, no, no, med school, what's going on? <laughs> so I understand. But yeah, no, it's been so interesting because I think folks don't draw equivalencies to the the depth of work and 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 commitment that's mm-hmm. required for both. I see it as it prepares me for success for each other. Like mm-hmm. the, I mean, right now I'm 22 years old running Nesby. It's it's insane. It's a multi million dollar organization. We have over you know 50 staff. I work hand in hand with my CEO every day to lead 50 staff. Making these decisions are opportunities of leadership. Most folks never get to experience, right? Whether yeah. you're in industry or academia. And I get to have that at this stage in age of my life. And so I think, I think 
man, y'all would be crazy not to, you know, <laughs> want to have me in these spaces because, hey, I get uh-huh. to bring so much more that you might need to know, right, to prepare for spaces like mm-hmm. this and for people who are in these environments. And so I see it as a huge benefit, but I I, I know the realities that a lot of people also don't. Um, so mm. I just commit to what I do anyway, because I'm hoping like, you know, Eileen says, you know, that in the future, they're going to see that impact and be like, hey, okay, maybe she was on something. <laughs> so I know that's going to be the case. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, when I was in grad school, I had a, a certain mentor make a comment about me about, it was like, oh, Christina, to our credit, spends a lot of time helping people. Pause. Christina, yeah, spent too much time helping people. <laughs> Long pause. Christina wasted a lot of her time helping people in public. And there was an audience for that conversation. And it was like this in the room kind of went dead a little. And I remember sitting there being like, wow, I didn't think that I could be humiliated about helping people. <laughs> um, and it, at the time, it really hurt. I was young. I was like, you know, like, what the hell? Like, I'm, I, I, I like love to do things that are going to empower the people around me. I want us to all rise together. Right. And I know that might not be. Uh, realistic at times it might be very idealistic of me to think that way but I want to at least try to bring as many people with me as I go where I need to go and um, I think this kind of work if it's a work of love and something you're passionate about you should pursue it you should feel like it's just as important because what it does it it fills you up I think when you do kind of this this work whether it's DI work or whether it's community service whatever it is that brings you joy that joy will fill you up with extra energy and focus and that'll help you really do better at the bench or at the robotics lab whatever it is that you're doing because you're filled with joy And when you're filled with joy, the work that comes out from your hands is just as excellent, if not more. So I really, you know, I wanted to ask this question because, you know, you guys are both like superstars and you're doing all this work and it's just like, see, you can do it all. I mean, yes, you don't sleep as much maybe, but (laughs) you can do it all. Absolutely. So don't be discouraged. You know, all of our listeners out there who like want to get involved in other things who may have heard, hey, you're not going to be taken seriously if you're not constantly working on your craft. Hey, Hey, you're not being focused. Hey, you're like, you know, doing too many things. Mm, yeah, maybe because they can't do it all, but you can. So you do it all. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so before we wrap up, I want to ask you guys, so what's next for you guys? Like, you know, Eileen, you're like super postdoc. <laughs> I swear, I swear, like every time of like social media, you have like fellowships and awards, like every <laughs> month, Eileen Fernandez here or there, like, <laughs> I'm like, you're just too good. You're making us all look bad. So what is, <laughs> what are your career goals and plans? Um, so I'm sort of at a, at a crossroads right now. Um, mm-hmm. I, I will admit I have always been very anti-academia. Um, and then once I, I did the postdoc because I felt like I hadn't, I hadn't finished with research yet. I, I felt I was like the work I'm doing as a graduate student, I'm like, this might, ma- might matter in like 30 years, maybe. But I'm like, <laughs> but I, you know, I really very intentionally came into this space, into the translational space. Cause I'm like, okay, in five years, this work is going to matter. And, and it's true. Like the work I've done, it's not like the changing thing, but it's, it's contributing to, to, to cancer um, mm-hmm. treatment for patients, which is, which is what I wanted. So I feel like I f- have fulfilled that. Um, and I, I, 
I was considering academia, but I I might be, I think I'm gonna take a step away from academia for a little while because it hasn't been as kind to me, you know, it, it's mm. as it is to all of us. Um, and it's something I've been sort of struggling with with what's the right, what is the right next step for me. Um, but I think I can be really I I think whatever space I step into, I'm gonna be very powerful and, and I'm gonna be a change maker. It doesn't matter where I where I go. Um, as yes. long as I stick to the to the science, right? As long as I'm still sort of in the cancer space. Um I think that's going to be the the right the right next step for me. But mm-hmm. I, I do feel very fulfilled because I joined the postdoc and I like to say I came in hot and I was like, well, while I'm here, I'm going to make Yale better. Like, Absolutely. this is what I'm going to do. And I, <laughs> I came oh. in. <laughs> it's just like blazing hot. And I blazing was like, hot. oh, my God. It's like her name is literally everywhere. I, <laughs> a favor. You would not believe. It's like Gail Eileen Fernandez. Gail Eileen Fernandez. It's like, leave some space for some of us. Okay. Like, she, you I cannot be. I people's names all the time. I know. I, I like, you can't up. be number one always. Okay. <laughs> but no, that's that's great to hear that. You know, I, I also think that's that's also something our listeners would appreciate is that, you know, you, you do different things and you find crossroads and sometimes you might switch gears. You might not do what's expected of you or you might do something that you didn't even think you were going to do. And that's OK. And we've talked about this in um, other episodes, too, that your path is yours. There is no one path. There's no best or canonical path. And people like to say it, but really only like three to five percent of Ph.D. holders stay in academia. The vast majority don't. And it's not just because, you know, they just weren't good enough. Some of them leave because it's not the right place for them. And I think that's really important for y'all to hear is that there are many ways, many roads to find the spot that's best best for you. So thanks for sharing that, Eileen. And Favor, you're you're like 22 and you're like already super famous. I remember when I like emailed you, I was like, oh, she might not respond. She's like in the news. Like she's too, she's too like big already. And she's like this young, fresh blood. It's like she graduated in 2021. I was like, yeah. what is happening? <laughs> um, so you clearly have this big, bright future ahead of you. So what's your plan? What are, what are your ca- career aspirations? Yeah, no, that's a fantastic question. I think I get that question like every week. Um, oh, okay. Is, <laughs> so you've been you prepared. Know. You know, oh. you've you've been media trained. Oh, yeah. You know what to say. I have a great answer for you. My media trained answer is I'm open. It's <laughs> <So, laughs> the reality. I think I, I came to grad school, obviously, again, similar to Eileen, I'd been hoping for med school. So I already had to do a pivot in like mm-hmm. the past two years choosing grad school. And so that I got into grad school and I was like, okay, well, I've always loved teaching and mentoring. So I love, love research. So academia looks like a great way to go. And then being in Silicon Valley, you just learn there's, what can't you do? I think that's the mm-hmm. beauty of being somewhere like this. I mean, you meet people who are intersectional, interdisciplinary and in law, policy, AI, technology, entrepreneurship, you name it, people are doing it nowadays. And so I think generally my mind is open. I think something important to also, you know, share with people is that I took this class called uh, Designing Black Experience. It's through design school. And it was the first uh, sort of iteration of the class ever. It was beautiful this past spring. And something we learned was even that, especially with the way generation is set up now, you don't have to pick one. And you don't have to do all of one at one time. So meaning even when you choose a career path or academic path or whatever else, a social path, it doesn't have to be this, well, I'm picking this one thing now and that's that's what I'm going to go for for the next 50 years until I retire. And I felt so empowered knowing that. I was like, I could do a bit of policy right now because I love that work. 
I could do engineering because I love that work. I could do a bit of, you know, ICA, which means I'm doing sort of teaching prep, right? Because I love that work too. So I was sort of picking bits and pieces as I go along. And I don't know what that's going to mean for my future career exactly, but I, I just know that I have the ability and power to now choose and experience multiple things however I want. So yeah, that's that's what's in the future map for me. Don't know what that's going to result in. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, this is basically what we want all. I love what you just said. And I love what Eileen just said too. It kind of it meshes so perfectly in that um, be open. You might find a path a little bit later down the line that is better for you. Or you might like go down one thing and then decide you're going to change your mind and go back down a different path. And who knows? And I think that kind of fluidity and versatility is, it is kind of a newer thing. I think that academia, STEAM, has traditionally been very narrow, very singular, very linear. And I think, you know, as generations are changing, as the people who are being, who are the fabric of the environment are changing, we're going to see a little bit more fluidity, a little bit more flexibility, even in the hard, hard sciences. And I think it'll give people really opportunities to grow and, you know, be creative and imaginative and find their passion and find what brings them joy. Cause truly, at least from my experience, I've seen that people who are happy and in love with what they do, they are far more productive, far more efficient. And the work that they create is so much better. So um, it's so great to hear that you guys are both kind of, you know, at this like open stage and trying different things and finding what works for you and not what people say works for you. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I just, you know, I'm so glad I got to interview both of you guys. And I feel like, I think in a couple of years, maybe even months, you guys are going to be like famous and I get to be like, I knew them <laughs> when I spoke to them via, you know, this podcast. So um, before we wrap up, do you guys have any words of advice or encouragement for our listeners? I have a lot and I never, like I said, people love to talk, right? And they love to give advice. So... <laughs> One thing I always like to say, I always like to mention imposter syndrome, no matter what setting I'm in and, mm -hmm. and you know, recognize if you don't know about it, look, <laughs> learn about it a little bit and take a moment when you're having your moments of doubt, sit that, sit back and say, is it real or is it imposter syndrome? Um, mm -hmm. Because, you know, all these negative comments that people have made our entire lives, they seep in, unfortunately. Um, so mm -hmm. that negative voice in your head really isn't your negative voice. It's it's theirs, right? So mm. you're capable of everything you want to be capable of. Um, my mom told me that, and look at look at me now. You know, like it's she wasn't wrong. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you, everyone has to work different amounts, and you know maybe you have to work a little bit harder than the person next to you, but that doesn't mean you don't deserve to be in the space that you're in. And if you want to go and do some DEI work, go and do that work because you're making it better for yourself. You're making it better for those around you. And we're just creating space, opening up these spaces for the next generations that are following. So just follow, follow your dreams with that. Yeah, I love that. And you favor any bits of advice? Yeah, I would say um, something I always think about is uh, we had this tagline back in undergrad at UMD and we'd always say fearless. And uh, fear is such one of my favorite movies and book series, Dune, they, they, they have this phrase also says fear is the mind killer, right? That the power of fear is astronomical. And so when you're fearless, you, you can do anything. Um, mm. I remember when I was choosing even high schools, you know, my, my parents 
first generation, they never went to college. They knew nothing about the U.S. educational system. They didn't know what to pick for me. And this program had just come out. It was dual enrollment. I went to community college, got my diploma at the same time I went to high school. And if Mm -hmm. not for that program, I see my life, literally, if not for that program, not being anywhere close to here. I would have gone to a local high school, very few resources, probably not have gone to any of the colleges that I dreamt of applying to just would have had a very narrow life choice, right? So reduced. But it took my parents, right, being so fearless and saying, we know nothing about this. We're going to put you in it. And we don't care what we have to learn, how friendly we have to get with the principal. They were on first name (laughs) basis calling the principal all the time. What does this mean? What are we signing? We know nothing. And it took them. I know that felt, you know, shameful for them, embarrassing for them at times and relying on me a lot. Um, but they were fearless about it. And that taught me a lot. So I think I've, I've incorporated mm-hmm. that throughout my life. It's not that I don't have fear, but I just learned to at least emulate that fearlessness in whatever I do. There's a lot of naysayers that are going to come up regarding whatever you do, especially if you do the type of work in DEI and so forth. Um, so just be fearless. Commit to what your purpose is. If that's to give and serve in some way, it's it's going to have astronomical impact. You might not get to see it, but it, it the work happens. So. Ugh, this has just been so good. I'm like, oh, I have so many quotes. So like on my laptop, I always have these like inspirational quotes that are really cheesy and corny. And I'm just going to have to like use (laughs) like fearless, be fearless. (laughs) So then I'm like, okay, Christina, I got this. It's like, you know, but I'm so glad. I'm so glad you guys were able to come on and share your stories. And I just can't wait to see the amazing things the two of you are going to continue accomplishing because I mean you guys have already accomplished so much I don't know how much more you can do but I'm sure you can do more. <laughs> um, I'm sure you will do more and um, so thank you so much for coming and to our listeners for the resources we talked about today and for our directory of steam and s check out our website and I'll see you all next week steam the podcast is brought to you by rss.com we're produced by Brian Kelly and Christina Cho with help from T Badri Naomi Phillips Emily Chu and Sandhya Pabakaran. Our engineer is Brian Kelly at Echo Station Studio, and original music is by David James Pugo. If you like Steam the Podcast, please share it with your friends. Let them know that they can subscribe to Steam the Podcast on RSS.com Community, the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, Amazon Music, Samsung Podcast, Podcast Index, and Listen Notes. For resources and our directory of Steaminists, check out our website at projectsteamed.org. Thanks for listening and see you all next week. Mm-hmm.